Welcome to the Sport Performance Course podcast. Um, so I think understanding movement and having a really good eye for movement is uh, the most important part as a strength and conditioning coach. In this episode, we're going to discuss the importance of a skill analysis in the work of a strength and conditioning specialist with our guest, Bart Hanegraaf. Bart is a former Dutch baseball player and a Fontes School Sports Studies alumni. Currently, he works as a hitting coach and strength and conditioning coach for the Dutch national teams of baseball and softball, as well as for the Baseball Academy in the Netherlands. Bart is also a consultant for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Hey Bart, welcome. Thanks for um, doing the interview. After a short introduction, can you just briefly tell me who you are and what you are doing within baseball? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, always a pleasure. Um, yeah, after the introduction, my name is Bart Hanegraaf. I'm 32 years old. Um, I work as a athletic performance trainer for the Dutch Baseball and Softball Federation. Uh, and next to that, I'm also a consultant for uh, a major league organization uh, of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, at a young age, I think I was nine, I started playing baseball for a very small club in the southern part of Holland. Uh, from there, got really enthusiastic about the game. Um, I had a little talent, so I moved from the little club to uh, a bigger club in Eindhoven, PSV. And from there, I played... Uh, at the second highest and highest level uh, in the Netherlands. Also made a little trip for one year uh, to play uh, in the United States for a college. And uh, during my time uh, playing baseball, I was also introduced to um, coaching baseball. I started uh, coaching the, the, the youth teams at PSV um, as I was uh, attending uh, the SEALs, which was uh, uh, the physical education um college uh, also in Eindhoven and after that I decided to uh, apply for uh, the Fontes University to uh, further my education in sports. Um, during that time I uh, worked as a baseball coach and trainer for a baseball academy in Eindhoven um, and then uh, from there I moved up to coaching the national team under 18 and while I was studying at the Fontes University I uh, yeah, really was uh, intrigued by the teachings of Franz Bosch. So I did my internship uh, with Paul Venner, who um, used Franz Bosch's methods in uh, strength and conditioning. And I uh, applied all the methods that Franz was talking about to uh, to baseball. And after uh, a couple of years, I was uh, handed a, uh, a job for the Dutch Baseball Softball Federation as a athletic performance trainer. So now I'm working with um, the baseball and softball Olympic teams, and I also work at the Baseball Academy in Amsterdam, which uh, which is a full-time program for the talents, um, 15 to 18 year old. All right, that's quite a quite an impressive career already. Uh, were you playing baseball yourself during your time at university as well, or did you came up with uh, uh, the idea to become uh, kind of a trainer or coach within baseball back then? While I was uh, um, studying at the Fontes University, I was still playing. I was still playing at the highest level in the Netherlands. Um, then I was uh, a very busy man because uh, we, at the highest level, you uh, play three games a week, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, and you practice on Tuesday. But on Wednesday, on, uh, Monday and Wednesday night, I was doing the uh, under 18 national team as an internship because I was doing the uh, minor sports performance. Uh, and while doing that, I was doing the internship at the under 18 and later on worked for the under 18. Um, and I combined everything. I don't know how I did it at that time. Um, but once I was... Uh, uh, gr once I graduated, uh, the, the federation offered me the job and then I decided that I can, you know, play at a high level and also work at a high level. So then I decided to, uh, to quit playing baseball myself, but luckily, I mean, baseball is my passion, but I was able to work in it. So I still, uh, <laughs> you know, are, are, uh, are in the sport full time, although not playing myself anymore. Yeah. What, what do you reckon? Do you need a background in, in a specific sport to become a successful strength and conditioning specialist within uh, that specific sport or uh, what's your idea about that? 
No, I don't think you need a background in 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 in, in the sport. Uh, I do think that you have to familiar familiarize yourself with the sport uh, once you start working as a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, my luck was that I was already introduced, uh, you know, at a young age at the sport. Um, it can have it advantages, but it also can have its uh, disadvantages because maybe you have a certain perspective on the game and you're not open to to new ideas. Um, for me, I'm, I'm, I consider myself pretty open-minded, so I'm, I'm always looking for new ideas. But yeah, I can, it can definitely help being familiar with the sport, but it also can work against you. Um, but in my opinion, it's not a necessity to, to have played the sport uh, at all. No. All right. So you briefly mentioned that you're working with Olympic teams as well as uh, in the talent program within the National Baseball. Um, Association, but you also mentioned that you're doing consultancy work in uh, Major League Baseball. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between the two jobs, basically, or uh, the similarities? Yeah. Um, yeah, so two years ago, um, I did a presentation about uh, a movement analysis and how to apply training methods to baseball and then specifically to hitting. Um, uh, hitting is, you know, the, the offense in the baseball game. And I did my research while I was doing the minor sports performance at the Pontus University uh, within that specific uh, skill. Um, and then uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates offered me a job as a hitting consultant and basically gave me the responsibility to educate the coaches on um, motor learning, skill acquisition, and uh, integrating strength and conditioning uh, with the, the sport-specific skill. So what I do for the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, I go there and I um, analyze their training methods. I talk to the coaches. I sit down with them and look at players to make movement analysis together. And then we come up with training methods to see how we can uh, enhance a certain skill for a player. Um, in this case, uh, most of the time it's hitting. And then what I try to do is I try to combine the strength and conditioning coaches with the hitting coaches and then make an all-round plan to uh, yeah to help the the hitter um, reach its goals basically. Um, so the difference working with the Pittsburgh Pirates is I'm mostly behind the scenes. Um, every now and then I, I I'm a little hands-on with a certain player. Um, with the the Dutch national teams, I'm really hands-on. So it's my response my responsibility to uh, to really work with the players and to write the plans myself. Um, with the Pirates, it's more about educating and, and, and uh, giving information. Now, one thing you just uh, briefly mentioned is that, uh, that you find it really important to familiarize yourself with a sport. Um, so meaning that you can, although you don't have a background in a certain sport, you can join uh, the sport and, and work in the sport as a strength and conditioning specialist. Does doing um, a skill analysis, because that's, that's where you're mainly talking about, is the skill analysis, uh, in, in your opinion, a part of that familiarization? That's a good question. Yes, I, I think so. Um, I think as a strength and conditioning coach, it's really important to understand movement and uh, how movement is organized. And if you understand um, movement or the human body, then it it, it doesn't per se, um, uh, it's, it's not as important in which sport because uh, eventually it all comes down to human movement. Um, and if you understand that, then you can, then you can, uh, yeah, shine your light on different sports. Although working with different athletes, I think it's really important to, you know, not only to create a bond, but also have uh, knowledge of the, 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 the rules of the game or the tasks or, you know, how long the game uh, runs that, that all buys into how you, um, how you write the plans uh, for development. So um, I think as a strength and conditioning coach, it's more important to understand human movement and then familiarize with the sport than to be familiarized with the sport uh, on its own. All right, makes sense. So um, you 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 uh, basically what you're saying is that it's it's a part of um, uh, getting to understand the sport a little bit more and um, using uh, the skill analysis. And correct me if I'm wrong. You, you use the skill analysis in order to write the plans um, and um, also make uh, training sessions or select training exercises? Yeah. Yeah, for me as a strength and conditioning coach and also sports-specific uh, trainer and coach, 
the foundation is a movement analysis. If we want to enhance the skill of a player, then for us it starts with the movement analysis. Um, first, we have to know what type of player we have, what uh, its movement deficiencies are, because that relates to um, higher performance, that relates to uh, you know um, uh, preventing injuries, um, or if a, in, uh, a player gets injured, a movement analysis can tell you where the um, yeah the deficiencies are, what leads to an injury, yes or no. So for us yeah. uh, within our program, and I think as a strength and conditioning coach uh, all around, the, the foundation should be the movement analysis. Yes, makes sense. Then. If if it's a big part of the job, um, can you explain um, how you're able to do that um, skill analysis? So from a practical standpoint, how do you perform that skill analysis? Is it by using, for instance, um, a video, or are you just just look at a player and decide where his deficiencies are, for instance, or where he can improve? Or how how does that work for you? Yeah. Um, good question. So I, we use a framework. So as a step-by-step -step analysis, what we do is we, we do use video. So if we really want to make an, an in-depth movement analysis, uh, we, we use video from different angles. Um, but at first start with understanding how to analyze the, the specific skill. So um, as an example, for me, it's easy to take hitting in baseball. Um, I do have to have the knowledge of the importance of what is happening within the skill. So um, when I do a movement analysis, I have to have a good idea of what a good swing uh, in hitting is. From there on, I make the video and then I watch the player take a swing. So a swing is, uh, yeah, uh, a one hit, let's say in baseball. Um, and then I will use um, my knowledge of anatomy, my uh, knowledge of motor control and my knowledge of the specific skill to uh, paint the picture of what the, the the athlete is doing right, what is he doing wrong, and then I write everything down. Um, sometimes I compare it to that's at least what I did in the beginning. I compare uh, the technique or the analysis to really good players, and then um, yeah, we can we can see the difference of what we want uh, within the specific skill to what the athlete is doing at the moment. Um, and if we finally came up with a good movement analysis from there, we start writing the plan on how to uh, enhance the skill. Yeah, but one of the, the major things I, I reckon is that you clearly understand what is needed to uh, execute the skill um, very well. Are you using like uh, one specific uh, technique, for instance, as the golden standard? So every player should be uh, executing the skill in that particular way? And are you uh, analyzing that, for instance? Yeah, very good question. Um, to be uh, really blunt with the answer, no. Um, so as a as I'm looking at the movement, I'm, I'm, I make a distinction between what type of skill we're dealing with. So um, you have an open skill and you have a closed skill. An open skill meaning that the environment is constantly changing. A closed skill meaning that the environment doesn't have any influence on the athlete in how it moves. Um, within hitting, um, I'll take that as an example uh, to keep it simple. Uh, hitting is a open skill because uh, the environment changes. The pitcher throws the ball, but the ball is never at an exact location. So uh, the technique needs to be different anytime uh, to adapt to that environment. So we can't really make bold statements on what is a good technique or what is a bad technique because the the environment is constantly changing. So then you have to dive in a little bit deeper and look at movement principles. Um, and as I said uh, before, it's really important as a strength and conditioning coach to know what good movement is. And then if you can come up with these movement principles, then um, you can understand that these movement principles apply in different situations, and then you start to look for these principles within uh, the analysis. So it's not um, making an analysis and drawing uh, specific angles and, uh, you know, the, his foot needs to be in 45 degrees and his elbow needs to be in 90 degrees. This can vary depending on uh, the individual because everybody is built different. Everybody is, you know, has his own internal dynamics. And then also uh, the environment is constantly different. So it might be good that he has his foot in this position within this pitch, 
But if there's another pitch, maybe he needs to make uh, an adaptation. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden these rules don't uh, don't apply anymore. So as I'm making a movement analysis, and I bet we're, we'll go into uh, into this a little bit deeper, but I look at uh, general movement principles. Like, is the movement safe? Is it fluent? Um, yeah, and from there on, I, I start to uh, paint a picture. Makes a lot of sense. So you, you mentioned that you're looking for the general principles in uh, skill execution. Let's Let's call it that way. How how do you know what those general principles are, and and uh, can you can you maybe let's 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 stay in in in, in baseball and looking at, at pitching? Can you um, give an example of such a general principle in in hitting, for instance? Because I because I think it, you you just mentioned that it's it's very important to to analyze an athlete and to see how well he developed those general principles, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Um, yeah, let's take a really specific example in hitting. Uh, it's a it's a pretty violent and explosive movement. Um, um, we try in baseball, we try to hit the ball as hard as we can. Uh, the harder we hit the ball into the field, the harder it is for the defense to uh, to catch the ball. Um, so the hitters in baseball are really explosive and 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 turning violently. So we're creating a lot of energy, and that energy is running through our body. And while we're making the swing, uh, we can uh, generate energy, but we also have to get rid of energy. Now, how to get rid of this energy is really important because if we don't get rid of the energy in our body in an efficient way, we might get injured. So one of the movement principles that we apply in hitting is that if we want to get rid of energy in our body, we have to distribute that energy throughout as many joints as possible. So in a swing, I am rotating. And if I'm hitting a baseball, after I hit the baseball, I want to get rid of, you know, all the forces, all the energy in my body. I have to dissipate that energy away from risky spots. So when I make a movement analysis, I'm looking at the hitter and I'm looking at, okay, is he getting rid of this energy without any jerk, without any sudden stops in the movement? And is he using his full body to decelerate the swing? If so, then yes, good. That's uh, that's perfect. And it's safe. If not, then I'm looking, okay, where in his body um, w- or what in his body can he use more efficient to get rid of energy uh, in the system? So this is a, this is a, a global or broad example of how I would look at, at hitting. And then we can go into detail, uh, you know, when somebody is hitting, I want his uh, uh, back arm to pronate and endorotate and then uh, – uh, from his uh, longitudinal axis, I want him to fully rotate through um, through his movement. Um, yeah, and, and then I'll use my knowledge of anatomy to see, okay, is he using his body in, in an efficient way to uh, to decelerate the swing? Yeah, because you're talking about uh, the risky spots or the areas where there's a lot of um, uh, force or, or a lot of pressure on the, on the joints, for instance. Um, you're talking about um, other anatomical knowledge, uh, but you're also talking about dissipating energy. So that's more what I think is, is related to biomechanics. What kind of knowledge do you actually need in order to do a decent or a very detailed uh, skill analysis? Because you're mentioning quite a lot of uh, areas that you, you are aware of. Um, what do you reckon is, is vital to understand or to know what kind of areas? Is it anatomy, biomechanics? or? Yeah. I think uh, the, the the most important one that I use is anatomy. Uh, I think you cannot have enough knowledge of anatomy um, because eventually anatomy dictates how you move. Uh, our muscles are aligned in a certain way. They they cross uh, joints uh, a certain way. So they constrain how we move, but they also um, uh, dictate how we move. So if you have an understanding of that, then you can slowly paint the picture of how good movement uh, comes by. Uh, the second one is motor control. I think um, if you understand how the body organize, uh, organizes itself or controls itself, then you can use that to uh, add on to the knowledge of anatomy that you have because we know, uh, for instance, that a slow movement is controlled different than a fast movement. So, uh, you know, you can't make the same conclusions within uh, slow movements than you make within fast movements. And then... Um, yeah, biomechanics, uh, kinematics, uh, everything that is that is that is involved within movement is uh, is it, it can add on to painting the picture in a better way. So I think 
uh, if I have to make a, you know, a, a list of importance, I would say anatomy is number one, uh, motor control uh, two or combined with anatomy. And from there on, uh, biomechanics, kinematics, those are uh, definitely some areas that can help making a good movement analysis. Makes sense. I, I think in uh, in terms of motor control and uh, how the body is actually organizing itself uh, for the optimal uh, skill execution or the optimal way to perform a movement. What are key concepts? Because I, I I tend to hear that because you're talking about general concepts where you're looking for. I tend to hear that you're looking for like coordination patterns in a skill analysis primarily. Then now there is a theoretical background in that that the body is is using attractors and fluctuators in order to control itself and to uh, to find an optimal way to perform a movement. How do you incorporate that that type of uh, knowledge and like a theoretical approach to to motor control, such as the attractors and fluctuators, uh, in your uh, analysis and in your work? Yeah, yeah. So um, diving into that subject a little bit is that um, um, earlier in, in in motor control research, um, a lot of uh, the ideas of how um, movements are controlled came from a information processing. Uh, uh, perspective. So thinking, you know, using the analogy of a computer or a brain centralized uh, approach where the brain was calculating all the movements and would send down a signal and then the muscles would uh, would obey. Um, now um, you see that the research uh, in motor control and motor learning is, is, is slowly going to uh, more of a dynamical systems uh, approach. Um, and um, the dynamical systems approach um, sees the body as a, a complex system um, uh, containing out of all these subsystems that have their influence on each other. And um, yeah, the theoretical background comes from thermodynamics, I think. Um, and it looks at systems that are complex and chaotic, but are um, alluding to um, 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 states preferable states and these preferable states that a system tends to go to are called attractors. So um, how do you translate that to movement? If I make a, a movement, my body tends to go to a preferred, uh, a preferred movement pattern. Um, and uh, if the body goes to a preferred movement pattern, we call that an attractor. So a state that is very stable. Um, and this is organized um, by the way that our body is 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 um, is built. So anatomy dictates uh, uh, certain movement patterns, but also motor control, but also the environment. So you see that there's a lot of influence uh, that dictate how a mo motor or a, yeah a movement pattern or a motor pattern is controlled. Okay, can you maybe um, um, give a very clear example? of an attractor in, in a certain movement, uh, maybe related to, to baseball? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it, to, to look at it really simple is basically saying an attractor is a stable movement pattern within a movement. Uh, and then you, you just uh, mentioned the fluctuator. A fluctuator would be, to state very simply, uh, a, a movement pattern that is changing um, to adapt to the environment. So if I look at movement, and let's say for a really uh, simple example is uh, throwing. Um, if I throw a ball as hard as I can, then the joint that is most as, at risk is the shoulder joint because there's a lot of forces going through the shoulder. And the shoulder is a very complex joint because it can move in, uh, in, in multiple directions. And um, the body doesn't really care about Throwing the ball is hard. I think that's the mind working, but it does really uh, care about not getting injured. So the body will do everything in its power to uh, to stabilize the shoulder joints so that you won't get injured or you don't tear any uh, structures in your shoulder. So every time you throw an implement, a baseball or a rock or something really hard, your shoulder will uh, shoot into a 90 degree abduction. Because from an anatomical standpoint, that is one of the most safest positions your shoulder can be in. And um, this is organized by the body in a decentral way because we have muscles, musculature uh, surrounding the shoulder joint. And when I'm throwing very uh, hard, all these muscles surrounding the shoulder to protect the shoulder are going to contract. And we call this co-contractions. Um, and because it's happening very violently, all these muscles create uh, a force uh, landscape within the shoulder that always is going to balance the shoulder in a 90 degree abduction. So 
to say uh, for throwing, if I look at a movement uh, pattern, then because I'm throwing the ball very hard, my shoulder is always going to that 90 degree uh, abduction. That 90 degree abduction for me would be an attractor state. Um, how it gets there is, uh, you know, you can, you can bend your upper body. You can, you can, um, uh, you know, put your feet in a, in a different position. It doesn't matter, but that 90 degree abduction is, is most of the time always organized decentrally and self-organized by the body. So we look at that as an attractor state. Yeah. I think that's a very clear example of that attractor. I think you also explained a little bit how, how that attractor, um, wh where it originates from. So um, in, in most of the times, uh, at, at least that's that's what you mentioned for the shoulder joint in this particular example, one of the main reasons that an attractor state might become very stable is to protect itself from damaging. Do you think that it's usually the case in, in attractor states or is it also something that, uh, that, that might originate from something else? Yeah, so there, there. Franz uh, um, wrote this in his book. There are some uh, key points that will lead you to attractors in movement. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the the most, uh, um, yeah, um, present one is is definitely there where uh, high forces are going through through joints or through the body. So when you make a movement analysis, it's also it's always really really good to look at injuries. Like uh, within a certain sport, where do injuries happen? Because if there's a lot of injuries uh, within a, a certain movement pattern, then that tells me that that movement pattern should be organized in a very, very specific way. Otherwise, injuries might happen. So, um, yeah, for me, uh, there where the forces are high, there's probably a, an attractor state. But there's also uh, another, uh, there are a, a couple of other key principles how to look for attractors. Um, one of the key principles is also um, there where there's time pressure. So when a movement needs to be uh, organized in a very fast, uh, very fast time window, it also has to be spot on. So that's where an attractor state needs to uh, needs to be. Uh, at the end point of a movement, um, this comes from the theory of uh, endpoint learning. The body always wants to uh, organize itself towards an endpoint because if the goal is not clear, then it's hard uh, for the body to really organize itself uh, towards that. So if you look at a movement pattern, the endpoint is probably uh, something that needs to be highly specific as well. Um, there, uh, another one where I look at is uh, where the direction of forces uh, um, um, change all of a sudden. So within hitting, uh, you turn your body and at a certain point, uh, you go from left to right rotation. So, um, you, you know, when you have extension of the bat, all of a sudden your body switches the other way. And we know that before contact of the ball, forces are high. And then right after contact of the ball, because the body is now turning the other way. Um, also, there might be uh, an, an attractor state. So then you have all these search points that if you look at movement and you apply these, these search points um, to look for attractors, then you might find these points within a movement pattern that need to be uh, controlled in a very, very good way for the body to, uh, to have efficient movement. And does that apply for the fluctuators as well? Or uh, do you have some rules to find those or to understand those um, well, fluctuators in, in movement? Um, and maybe you can try to provide an, an example as well, because I, they're very closely related, but very distinct. Um, right. Yeah, they, they, they're closely related. They go hand in hand. Um, you can't have uh, attractors without fluctuations because, as I said earlier, um, the attractors are those uh, patterns within a movement that needs to be highly stable and that withstand um, um, variability and chaos. So they, they will always be the same no matter what you throw against them. And fluctuators are um, basically the solutions for a changing environment. So if I look at hitting, there are um, different variables that a pitcher can offer a hitter. So a pitcher throws a ball, but it's never the same pitch because it can vary in speed. I can throw a very fast pitch or I can throw a slow pitch. So that is something that I have to adapt to. I can also throw a pitch 
inside and outside, meaning close to the hitter or away from the hitter to make it hard for the hitter. And then I can throw a pitch high and down. So these three variables um, are, are, are um, the challenge for a hitter to adapt to. So if I want to adapt to fast and slow, what I do is I buy myself a little bit more time to, uh, to hit the pitch. And I do that by flexing the knee a little bit more. Um, with the inside and outside pitch, if the pitch is inside, the hitter has to turn its body more to be able to hit the ball correct. If it's outside, it's, it's, it's a little bit more away from the hitter. The body has to turn less. So hip rotation for hitting is a very important fluctuator. There's not a certain specific um, angle for the hips to be in but the hips rotate depending on the location of the pitch. So that would be a fluctuator for us. And to train this, we have to train this in a very uh, variable, variable way to understand that you know it's not a fixed position, but it needs to be uh, constantly adapting to what the environment offers us. And then you have high and low. Um, high and low is uh, for a hitter, um, depending on um yeah we call it lateral uh, tilt of the uh, of the body now i go into a little bit more detail so if you're not familiar then this is pretty hard to uh, to understand but how much i tilt my body uh, downwards basically the lower the pitch the more i have tilt in my upper body the higher the pitch the more upright i am and again the environment dictates how much i should tilt my body uh, depending on what pitch the pitcher is throwing yeah, there are some pretty detailed um, and very specific examples. So uh, I think that's uh, uh, what you said. If you if you are familiar with the, the terms, then you you probably are able to follow. What I what I hear in your in your explanation is is um, the combination of uh, understanding the sport basically. So understanding what the sport is really about, but uh, the different types of of, of balls you can uh, you can encounter in uh, in hitting. Um, and also uh, a lot of knowledge about how the, the the human body actually works, how the anatomy is 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 influencing uh, the, the way we move, as well as how we organize and control our our movements. You also briefly mentioned uh, something uh, already about about training, so I'd like to go into that a little bit uh, more. Because if you, if I can understand you clearly, then then of course in a skill analysis you're you're uh, looking to identify the attractors, um, and you are looking to understand what the fluctuators are. Can you briefly go into how you approach your training? So once you have this understanding, once you have the knowledge, and once you know where a subject or or an athlete is is uh, needs to improve, how do you approach the next step, the training? Yeah. So we've made the movement analysis and then we, um, we highlighted the movement deficiencies of a player and uh, we start to write a plan. The, the way we do it within the federation is um, we integrate all areas that are involved within training. So we have sports-specific skill training, meaning we're going to train hitting, we're going to train throwing, we're going to train running. Uh, but we also incorporate strength and conditioning training. And whatever we do within strength and conditioning training should lead to better performance on the field. So I just, um, uh, to, 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 to paint a, a clearer picture, uh, I just talked about uh, rotation of the hips. Um, hitting is a, uh, a kinetic chain. So we, we use our lower body to transfer energy up our upper body into the bat. And we use hip rotation for uh, for this. And to transfer energy up the bat, we need very a very strong core. Uh, so let's take the core. And we made the movement analysis, and we come came up with the conclusion that this athlete has a very poor use of its core muscles. Um, how we would do this? We would come down together with the sports specific trainer and uh, the strength and conditioning coach, and we would sit down and say, okay, we need to make a plan for the core. How are we going to do this? Um, we can come up with drills within the hitting training that will address the core. So put more pressure on the core while hitting. Uh, we put them in different uh, stances. We uh, use different implements 
Um, we would put more time pressure on to really enhance his use of his core. But we also talk to the strength and conditioning coach and we say, okay, we're working on this, so we need you to get the core stronger. And this is where the the ideas of motor control and motor learning come and in the integrated approach and coordination training. The strength and conditioning coach sits down and says, okay, how does the core function within this skill? And we know that the core, um, the, the abdominals, they have a very small uh, window uh, where they are at their strongest. So if they're elongated, if they're stretched, they're not strong. And if they're contracted or, or, or too short, they also are not strong to transfer energy. So we know that the abdominals want to stay at a certain optimal length for them to be very strong and, and, and transfer energy. So the strength and conditioning coach can use this building block, the optimal length of the abdominals, to further enhance motor control and coordination within the specific skill. So his, and we, we take uh, this very uh, specific uh, part now, his uh, exercises in the gym are made to make the core stronger, but within the function that is used in field or within the skill or performance. Um, and this is all, you know, uh, we can do this locally. So make the core stronger within its optimal length. Then he'll move from a local training more to a global or total movement pattern where he's going to incorporate rotation. And the core now is um, triggered to stay within its optimal length within rotation. And then we use the next step and we call it contextual, uh, where he's going to use more of the environment and a lot of variability where the core has to rotate and stay strong within all these different positions and maybe also use implements. You know, in baseball, you have a baseball and the baseball dictates how you rotate and how you tilt your body within strength and conditioning. He can do that too, uh, but maybe using medicine balls to throw at certain targets and the strength and conditioning coach would say, okay, throw it at target one where you have to tilt your body a little bit more or throw it at the, uh, Target three, where you have to um, keep your body a little bit more upright. So constantly challenging that core within certain positions and within certain movements. Um, and we hope that that transfers to uh, the eventual skill that we need uh, within our game. Yeah. So if I uh, put it all together, you started off uh, in, in the podcast with the distinction between closed skills and open skills, uh, where you uh, mentioned that uh, most of the most of the time we talk about an uh, in hitting uh, we talk about a, an open skill so the body needs to adapt to a changing environment um if you look closely to the skill itself uh, and you analyze um how the skill is executed and uh well what it means to um execute the skill uh successfully then you're trying to find um coordination patterns such as the attractors and fluctuators uh, where the fluctuators have their role in uh, the ability to adapt to, well, the, the changing environment. Uh, you just briefly mentioned that uh, you're doing some exercises to improve, in this particular example, uh, the abdominals. And you also talk about the environment. So uh, that is something I, I throughout the, 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 well, the interview we have, is that the, the environment plays a, an important role as well in, in order to control the movements. Um, what is your approach um, to incorporate the environment um, with uh, you know, what your training exercises, uh, not necessarily for skill uh, training, but also for strength and conditioning exercises? Uh, can you briefly go into that? Because I think incorporating um, the, changing, the, the changing environment and make an, an, an open skill um, or improve an open skill, I think it's very important. Yes. Yeah, so you have the, uh, going back to the open skill and closed skill, that's basically on a spectrum. So you can have a very closed skill where the environment will always be the same. So as an example, uh, let's take the 100 meter sprint. Uh, the 100 meters is going to be the 100 meters um, and the, the runner is going to stay in its lane. Um, so the environment is not changing uh, much, you know, maybe for the weather to be uh, sunny or raining, but um, the, the environment in which the athlete moves uh, is constantly the same. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, you uh, might have uh, um, rugby, um, you know, which is a very uh, chaotic sport. You have the ball and there's all these defenders and you have to run through and the, the environment is constantly changing. Um, 
with it hitting yeah it's 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 open uh skill because the environment does change but it's not as open as rugby so you could make the distinction of what kind of skill do i have here and then as a strength and conditioning coach it's really uh, important to to also understand that environment like how open is it and how can i uh, train um, these movement patterns maybe also within a changing environment because that is what what's needed um, as a coach i always look at perception action coupling um, we never want to train that um, loose from each other so if you have the action the movement the movement always needs to happen within a certain environment because the environment and definitely in an open skill dictates how you move if you uncouple that then it's more a learning a trick that you can do but as soon as the environment gives you a different influence then that movement pattern still needs to survive and if you've never been um trained within that environment how do you know if you can f come up with the right uh, movement patterns or yeah. movement solutions so yeah so someone who's very good in uh, doing uh, soccer tricks uh, just on the on the pitch next door he will probably not be the best football player in the world when you talk about uh, soccer in uh, at, at, at a competition yes exactly and this is also where you can uh, put your question marks within a lot of training uh you know training design uh you you, you mentioned the uh, soccer you know how valuable is uh learning dribbling uh between cones you know you can be really really good at doing that but if you change the cones with defenders now that environment completely changes how do you interact with that environment um yeah. so i think it's always really important to look critically at what kind of environment am i dealing with and how can i couple movement patterns within that environment or you know we call it representative design how do i design my practice so that it's uh close to uh, performance as possible yeah so again it shows that you have to understand the sport very well in order to understand how your moves are executed and also how you are how do you how you approach your training of the skill yeah yeah exactly and, and a nice framework um that we use is the constraint-led approach um that that is a framework that is uh developed by newell um, and he basically took all the theories of motor learning and he put it in under one umbrella and he said uh, within movement there are three basic pillars that are constantly influencing influencing each other so you would have the task uh, of the skill so let's say uh, you know i'm playing basketball the task is getting the ball into the hoop but there are certain rules that I have to obey by, um, and uh, that dictates how I am playing the game. Well, the task is pillar number one, then we have pillar number two, which is the environment. Uh, the environment also have, has its influence on how I move because I have to you know, move within the boundaries of the field. Uh, the ball is a certain weight, the ball is a certain, uh, has a certain uh, form. Um, the hoop is at a certain height. So that all dictates how I organize my movement patterns. And then the last pillar is uh, the organism itself, the body uh, within, you know, within you move. Um, and my body has, as we talked about, restrictions. You know, um, I'm five foot eight, uh, probably not <laughs> made for basketball per se, uh, but my arms are only that long. So that gives me you know, options how to move, but it also constrains me how I move. And this dynamic of these three pillars interacting with each other, um, that is what uh, dictates how movement patterns emerges. And the constraint-led approach basically says, okay, if I influence the task, now it might happen that this movement pattern changes because I've influenced the task. Um, you know, an example is within soccer training, normally I play on a very, very uh, big pitch, so that would stimulate long passing. If I now uh, influence the, 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 uh, the measurements of the pitch and I make it really small, long passing is out of the equation, so now I'll probably dribble more, I'm going to use ground passes a little bit more. So this is a nice example of how you can tweak the task or the environment or the organism and then you can make movement patterns emerge. And the better interaction you can provide, the better your training um, yeah, could go. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I think the constraint-led approach is very, very helpful in, in order to design or select your exercises. And um, we use this, this, uh, this approach in, um, 
in, in, in our courses as well. Uh, and, and usually I, I provide the example of, uh, of skiing, um, like a, a little kid you put on the, on the top of the mountain, uh, at the top of a black slope, uh, with all the buckles. I don't think that's an environment where that, that little kid will start to learn uh, how to ski, uh, or at least the probability of learning uh, to ski is, is very low. Um, so I think that the, the, the interaction between the task, the skiing and the environment, uh, the black slope and, and the little kid, um, so the, the, the organism in the, in this approach, uh, clearly shows that you should try to find a different environment, uh, and to provide the kid with a different, uh, task, uh, at first in order to let the, let the little kid, uh, learn how to ski, um. So I think it's very, very useful in, in, in um, yeah, well, as I said, in, in order to, uh, to select uh, exercises or to design new exercises or make uh, variations of, of existing exercises. Um, all right. Um, yeah, very, very interesting and uh, very, very nice examples already, um, Bart. Um, and, well... I, you can you clearly demonstrated that your work as as um, as a hitting coach or as a strength and conditioning coach or as a consultant is uh, is very broad. Like uh, you're looking into uh, various parts of the sport uh, and also uh, think uh, about the the movements. I think in in uh, in a very holistic way. Um, you try to incorporate a lot of um, well background knowledge in order to understand what's happening. And I think you clearly demonstrated it already. Um, just to briefly go into your, your work at, 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 at baseball, for instance, um, can you, can you briefly describe what your typical workday looks like if you go to, uh, a strength and conditioning, um, or a training training day, uh, at baseball? Yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, start with a uh, blank sheet. Uh, you know, we, we start the, the year off fresh. We, we have no idea what the players are, uh, are looking like so uh, our first uh, priority would be to make a good movement analysis and we normally uh, you know the first week we do a test street um, so we videotape uh, all the players at different skills so in in baseball uh, throwing is very important uh, hitting a baseball is very important and then we would have sprinting um, you know very important um, so we would videotape these skills um, within all players and then we would also have you know your uh, your physical um, testing so vertical jumps uh, rotational power that basically gives us a baseline of what we're dealing with um, we get all the information together and that's where uh, the movement analysis starts so we use the video to make a movement analysis and we do that together with the specific uh, coaches and the strength and conditioning coaches uh, my uh, my fortune is that uh, I can do both. So, uh, you know, if I make a movement analysis, I also uh, paint the picture of, you know, what type of strength and conditioning exercises am I going to use for uh, for this uh, typical player. Um, but we, we have multiple strength and conditioning coaches. One of them is uh, Paul Venner, who's also very familiar within the Fontis uh, University. Um, and we sit together and then we make the plan. Uh, we make a plan, you know, as I just... Uh, uh, just said sports specific wise okay the next six weeks we're going to use these drills this uh, uh, training design to enhance these movement patterns and within strength and conditioning we also use these exercises and this uh, uh, this program to you know better enhance the building blocks to make sure that uh, sports specific gets uh, gets better as well and then um, yeah as, as a typical day we start uh, if I take the example of the academy, uh, the, 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 the talents, we start 7.15, we come together um, in, the, in the morning, we have a strength and conditioning uh, um, uh, session. So usually that, you know, at max, that takes an hour and a half, uh, but we try to keep it short. We, we rather have, you know, a short, uh, um, short and uh, intensive quality, uh, quality workout um, and um, from there well, once we have their session our talents go to school then we get together in the office uh, we would uh, reflect on the training um, and then talk with the staff about uh, the training session in the afternoon because we do two training sessions per day and then uh, depending on 
what the training design is. We uh, we we get ready for the training, and of course we also monitor the players. We uh, talk about uh, you know um, players individual, like what needs to happen, where do we need to tweak the program, um, and from there we we yeah we we <laughs> discuss the day, and we also do different. So when we're dealing with talents, our objective is to have the talents. Uh, um, sign a professional contract in the United States. So we also spend a lot of time on the culture. You know, what does it take to become an at, uh, elite athlete? So it's not only working out, but it's also your rest, you know, your recovery, your nutrition. So um, um, sometimes we would have a uh, meeting with the nutritionist and we say, okay, we have these athletes, how are they eating? You know, somebody might be overweight or somebody might be too skinny. So how do we uh, plan accordingly? We would have um, culture sessions where we would um, um, tell our players how to set goals. You know, what do you want to accomplish? We would have individual meetings with the players where we have personal development plans and we talk talk to the players uh, about that. So yeah, it's pretty intensive, um, but it's it's really fun because everything is is uh, aligned to make an athlete or a team better. There's a big difference between the talents because we um, train them more individual. We try to get them to college or professional baseball. With the Olympic teams, you're also dealing with team dynamics. You're really training towards a certain tournament, towards a certain goal where you more, uh, you know, focus more on group cohesion, on strategy. So it's it's a it's a little different. Um, yeah, working with talents that you need to bring to the next level or players that are already at the highest level and now they're only focusing on uh, performing. Um, yeah, you have to take that in consideration if you're a strength and conditioning coach as well. You know, as a, as a starting strength and or a starting player, as a strength and conditioning coach, maybe you focus more on, uh, you know, execution of movement. How do I enhance this? And as a uh, athlete that is performing at a high level now, you're really uh, dealing with periodization how do i prime them at the right time at the right uh, moment so yeah the, the the focus shifts a little bit depending on the athletes that you're dealing with yeah you clearly you clearly outlined that you work in uh in a, in a uh, well, let's put it this way in a multidisciplinary uh team so you have a nutritionist you have your psychologist you have your strength and conditioning specialist you have your coach you have uh all kinds of specialists and you you really uh, work together as a group in order to develop, of course, uh, in in in, uh, in the academy to develop your uh, your athletes. So um, to 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 go into that a little bit more specific, um, when you see a strength and conditioning specialist or or someone who's willing to become a very good strength and conditioning specialist, what would you say is the most important skill to acquire or to develop as a strength and conditioning specialist? Oh, that's a very good question. I think um, is a very good skill to have is develop a an, an eye for movement. Uh, watch movements, learn movements. How do how do they emerge within uh, a certain sport? Uh, what are the grades doing? Can I dissect really good athletes from poor athletes and watch? movements as much as possible because eventually as a strength and conditioning coach your only job is to make athletes move better um and um yeah of course uh, getting them stronger is uh a uh, important part but that's not more important than making them move better um you know eventually what you need is the athletes to perform on the field and your only job as a strength and conditioning coach is making sure that your athletes uh, are moving their best on the field. Um, so I think understanding movement and having a really good eye for movement is uh, the most important part as a strength and conditioning coach. And then, of course, you know, acquiring knowledge um, for the sport, uh, you know, of the human body, of learning processes. How does the movement, how does the human body learns? So motor learning uh, theories, I think that is, you know, very good to have in your uh in your backpack. Um, but as a skill, I would say, yeah, a good eye for good movement. Last question, uh, Bart, to, uh, to round it all up. Um, what is for, for you, what is, what is your most, um, 
What is your biggest challenge in your work? What do you experience as the biggest challenge? Yeah. Um, I have... I can I can name a couple. So when I started with the the, the, the baseball federation, I started as a strength and conditioning coach. I think my my biggest challenge, and also that was probably my biggest insecurity, is uh, you know knowing when are you doing something right or wrong. Uh, when I have to design programs, uh, especially because you know you you have the knowledge that human bodies are so complex. You try to find simplicity within that complexity. And the, 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 the easiest thing is to look at, okay, what does a strength and conditioning program look like? And it's very easy to fall into the, you know, the, 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 the mindset of, oh, I need to look at reps and sets and, and, and linear progressions. Well, I knew that that wasn't the, the, the right path for me to take. So um, my biggest challenge was to really hold on to, you know, my 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 knowledge of, you know, I have to look at it from a movement lens, a movement perspective. So how can I make movements better other than, okay, what's out there in the, in the literature of strength and conditioning, looking at rep sets, uh, you know, maximum uh, uh, repetition, those kind of things. So that was a big challenge for me to find a way, like, how do I design my programs? And that's what I'm saying. Like, if you if you have a good eye for movement, then you can come up with exercises and don't be afraid to come up with an exercise you know, that might be out. But, um, you know, at least it's safe and you can you can um, uh, come up with good arguments on why you're using that, or, uh, you know, why you're using that uh, exercise. So that was one big challenge for me. Um, the second one that I'm still dealing with is 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 ego uh, within top sports. I'll be very blunt and, uh, and, and honest. And I deal with it, this, uh, especially in professional baseball. I'm, I'm, uh, I come from a country <laughs> that's really small, uh, the Netherlands. Uh, you know, we don't play baseball a lot here. Uh, thankfully, we, uh, you know, we're still uh, uh, um, able to have uh, people from the Curacao Islands or uh, the, the Caribbean Islands that play baseball that uh, are able to play for the Dutch national team. So in the world rankings, we're doing well, but as a country, we're really small. So when I first worked for the Pittsburgh Pirates and I came there as a young, you know, young guy from the Netherlands coming with these out of the box ideas, the biggest challenge was to um, yeah, convince or to show the people that you're knowledgeable and that you're not just, you know, uh, coming up with a weird exercise, but you really um, yeah, show them that you know what you're talking about. And I think that was, you know, you're dealing with people that have been in professional baseball for over 30 years that, you know, maybe were uh, really good players in their prime time that been through all, you know, uh, levels of the sport and then here comes this young guy from uh, from the netherlands telling uh, you know hey maybe the way that we're training is not optimal yet we could do it in a better way uh that was a big challenge for me and to to not be uh intimidated by the big names and then uh yeah i found that very hard in the beginning but uh yeah i think it's going well and i'm building relationships with all these people so uh it's, it's going better but it stays it stays a, a big challenge how do you make yourself um, known? How do you yeah. get the information across? I think it's a challenge in not only uh, elite sports, uh, but I think in uh, in most professions, you, uh, you 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 might experience this uh, this uh, this issue. Maybe in, at different levels, but yeah, uh, takes time to to overcome. I think. And as you said, uh, building building relationships, uh, get get to understand to know each other uh, a bit better. Well, Bart, um, thank you. Those those last two uh, points, I think, um, are very wise lessons uh, for for listeners. And uh, I would really like to to thank you for uh, for having the time to do the interview. Um, and uh, yeah, we I think we have lots of uh, common interests, so we can talk for hours and hours even further. So uh, about the topic, so it might be for a later uh, later point in time. But uh, thanks for uh, for doing the, doing the interview and be. So kind to uh, to give a lot of examples of how you work and, uh, and what you are doing on a daily basis as a as a skill coach and a strength and conditioning coach. Yeah, thank you again, uh, Wilco. Always fun to uh, have this conversation. I know we talked in the past a lot. You uh, learned me a lot when I was uh, a student at the Fontes University. So always uh, happy to give back and 
yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, it, it clears up a couple of points. I know I went into detail uh, within baseball a little bit, so it might be a little hard to follow every now and then. But if there are any questions, then, uh, you know, please reach out. I'm always happy to uh, to reply or to help out when uh, when necessary. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Sports Performance Course podcast. If you are interested in strength and conditioning, please consider to subscribe to the podcast. We have other interesting episodes to come in the near future. If you are interested in the sports performance course, you can find more information on our website. The link is provided in the show notes.